Well, good morning, everyone. If you're a guest here today, my name's Mark. We're really glad that you've joined us. So um, our family loves to laugh, and there's been one movie in particular that has uh, brought about more laughter probably than any other. What about Bob? What about Bob? If you're in the people-helping uh, profession, you, it's a must-see. And uh, there's some classic lines. I think at one point, the kids, we have five of them, knew like every line in the movie. And over time, there have been definitely some repeated lines, like those opening lines in the movie where Bob says, he's dealing with all kinds of emotional hang-ups and issues, I feel good, I feel great, I feel wonderful. And so I'll, I'll hear that occasionally around the house. Um, he, the other one is baby steps. You know, I'm doing the baby steps, baby step into this, baby steps, baby steps. Uh, one of our favorites is when he's gathered around with his therapist family that he's just kind of broken in on their family vacation. He's sharing a meal, and he's going on and on about how good it all tastes. Mm, mm, mm. And everybody's just kind of laughing about Bob. And, and all of a sudden, he breaks out of the mmms over the meal, and he's holding his corn on the cob in his two hands, and he says, Faye who's his therapist's wife, he says, Faye, I just got to ask you, is this corn hand-shucked? We love that line. We love that line. And then the one that is most repeated in our family is the line, it's better. So he, he has a new therapist because his old therapist was losing his mind over trying to get Bob together. And so he goes to this Dr. Leo Marvin, and Leo Marvin meets him one time, and he's really encouraged, and he tells Bob, hey, Bob, we're going on a family vacation, so I can't see you for a while. And he's freaking out, like, I've got to see this guy. And so he finds out where he's having vacation at Lake Winnipesaukee, and he takes the bus up there, and just as Bob uh, rides off the bus, here's Dr. Leo Marvin and his family coming out of the grocery store. And, you know, he's shocked to see his client. How in the world did he find out? And how could he ever do this and, and infringe on his privacy? And Bob's got one thing in mind. I've got to get another session with this guy. And so he's saying, when can, we, when can we meet? And he's got this time, and he wants it sooner than later. And the doctor's just refusing, but Bob is not relenting. And finally, the doctor says, look, we're going to do it. But it's not going to be at your time. I forget what time. It was like 3 o'clock, you know, and it's going to be at 5 o'clock. And Bob goes, it's better. It's better. So we, we say that a lot. When you're conceding, it's, it's better. It's better. So Solomon, not in a hilarious, funny way like the movie, is four times in Ecclesiastes 4 going to say, it's better. As you're doing life in this fallen world and trying to find meaning and purpose, there's a better way to live life as we trust God and walk with God. And so he is going to build his case again why it is that if we do life without God in this twisted, fallen, broken place, we are going to come up with his conclusion that it's meaningless. There is no way we can find meaning. There's no way we can understand the purpose of our existence. If we come from dust and return to dust, there's no way where we could find satisfaction and significance and security apart from from God, And he begins to describe what happens, four more kind of pieces of information to say why this world, doing life without God, leads us to that conclusion. So grab your Bible. Ecclesiastes is found in the middle of our Bibles, right after Proverbs. If you're new to the Bible, grab your table of contents, and we're in chapter 4. So if you're new to Door Creek, this whole year we've been chasing through the storyline 
of the Bible, and we're in this little mini-series in Ecclesiastes, which is just recounting this great wise man, the king of Israel's search for meaning and where he found it. So in verses 1 through 3, we find the first thing that he's going to point to that is meaningless and the implicit better way. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who's never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. So what he's going to point out here is this. When we abuse people for our own selfish gain and misuse the power and position that we have, that, that leads to meaninglessness and great evil and oppression. And there's a better way, the better way that the scriptures call us to. It's not in this text right here. Because what he says is to say how bad it is that there's evil and oppression, which is rampant in this world. It'd be better that you, you were dead than alive. It'd actually be better that you never were born to experience so much of the suffering that goes on in life. And that wasn't just the ancient stuff of 3,000 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. So we're not surprised when we catch up with the horrific things that are going on in our day today. So let me just give you a few stats. The United Nations says that there are 4 billion people. So what's the world's population? Seven something, right? So over half of the world's population live outside the protection of the law. It doesn't mean that there's not a court. It doesn't mean that there's not a judicial system or a law enforcement system, but it's corrupt and it's broken. And they can't look to those systems and people for protection to shield them from violence and injustice. Human slavery is another case in point. Do you know there's more, there are more slaves today than there were back in 1860 when it was illegal around the world? 27 to some 40 million slaves today, not just in far-off lands, but in cities and counties across our country. Human slaves. The average slave price worldwide, $90. $90. About 80% of the slaves are forced into labor situations 20, 22% into sex industry. Right now, there's millions of people starving in Africa, places like southern Sudan, Yemen, Somalia, Uganda. The, the number I heard yesterday was 20 million. So what's, how many is 20 million people? Well, it's New York, it's LA, it's Chicago, it's Houston, it's Philadelphia, our five most populated cities without food. Not because there's this natural drought, but because they can't get food because there's war. This is man created forced famine. And then there's the situations that are breaking out in your life, in your friends' lives, where you're just dealing with things that are unjust, unjust as you're dealing with something in the courts, unjust as you're dealing with something at work, unjust wherever it could be in the community. It happens. And we cry out for justice, and we might be duped into thinking we deserve revenge. No, we can want justice, but revenge that's all God's. That's all God's. One of my summer reads 
was uh, Natural Born Heroes by a guy named Christopher McDougall who wrote the book Born to Run. This is the story of these resistance fighters on the island of Crete. Really interesting story. These guys decided as uh, Hitler's army invaded their little island that they were going to not kill a German general. They're, they're going to kidnap him and create this fear of, man, what could happen next to some other high important ranking uh, general or military leader. And so they pull it off in this just island that is covered with Nazis. And it's this great story of how they get this guy off the island on a boat and pull it off. So he's chasing their route and the history of it. And he catches up with one of these guys. His name is Yorgos, who was part of the group that kidnapped the, the general off the island. And he asks him, he says, if I can ask you a question, would you do it again? Now that you're 91 years old, looking back, the Germans were murdering entire villages as they were looking for this general and those who kidnapped him. Was it wise to put your family at risk? Jorgis says, well, that's a good question. And he says this, when you live in a place that is this small, Crete, small place, small island, by itself, you're brought up to give help, not wait for it. When your neighbor needs something, he needs you, the person he knows, not the army, not the police, you. And if you're not there, someday you'll have to look him in the face and explain. The Germans didn't know us, and they believed that they could not lose. They believed they'd never have to look anyone in the face and explain. They never have to pay for what they did, and I believe that is why we defeated them because we have to answer to one another, and they did not. You know, they forgot how the book of Ecclesiastes ends. Go to chapter 12, very last verse in the Bible, as he's summing it all up, the importance of, you want to find meaning? It's in a relationship with God. Fear him, follow him, obey his commands. And then it says in verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So it's meaningless as he looks across the world and sees all the oppression and how powerless people are being abused by the powerful. And, and he reminds us of what the scriptures call us to, like the prophets are always getting after God's people like a prosecuting attorney. They're going, look, you, you, you've, you've got this going on. You're, you're trashing the most vulnerable people in your own community, your brothers and sisters, the poor, the widows, the orphans, and you're taking advantage of them. He says, here, you, you, get, you got all these religious things going on in your life. Let me tell you what true religion looks like. Let me tell you what a true fast looks like. It's to break the chains of injustice. We're to be people whose lives are marked with doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with God, the prophet Micah says. Jesus says we're to be shining lights, right? We're to be like that city set on a hill. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. And, and the opportunity we have is to take the power and position that God has given us, not to use people, but to serve them. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are our brother's keeper. In verses 4 through 6, then, he points out something else that is meaningless. Let's see if you can pick it out in a better way. 
And I saw that all the toil and all achievements spring from one, one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one hand with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Life is meaningless when envy and sloth derive and define our work. And here we see that the, the people are wasting the energy. It's all selfish. Just like the powerful, it's selfish. Their power is all used for their own self-advancement. Here it is for just getting more stuff. So on the one hand, you've got this greed. On the other hand, you've got this sloth. What, they're polar opposites, but what unites them is this self-centeredness. And so he's introducing us to this lazy fool, to this greedy workaholic, and, and then he shows us the better way, the better way of contentment. And as we're reading this, it's like the word is a mirror, right? It's, it's asking us, so, so as we look into the, into the mirror of God's word, who am I most like? Am I like this person who's always grasping for more? I've got to have more money so I can buy more stuff because that's going to make me happy. Am I just like, ah, forget that. I'm just going to, I'm not going to be engaged. I'm just going to fold my hands like a, like what? Like a corpse in, in a casket. He says, that, that person who's not even planting and sowing and harvesting, that, that person is devouring their, they're just destroying them, themselves, their own flesh, he says. Solomon's introducing us to the sluggard here, and it's a theme that's common in wisdom literature. There's some classic Proverbs. Do you remember the one that says, you know, as a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns on his bed? It's just it's great. You know, he's not going anywhere. He's just flopping back and forth. He's just completely lazy. In Proverbs 6, we read this about the sluggard. How long will you li lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity like an armed man. But he says there's a better way. And the better way is the way of contentment, of tranquility, which points to a peaceful satisfaction. He says there's a better way. There's something better than two hands that are grasping. The better way is one handful with contentment. The way of contentment. He talks about this as a gift from God. Look at chapter 5, verse 19. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions, so everything we have is from God, right? He gives it. And the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil... This is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. And the Apostle Paul says, I've learned the secret of that. He said, I've had plenty, I've had want. I've been in good times, I've been in bad times. I've learned the secret of it. I can do all things through Christ. His secret of contentment was in his relationship with Christ. The one who said, I I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Now, we just got to catch up with the challenge of contentment in our day. You realize the whole driving force behind all that is advertising is that if we don't have this product, if we don't have this experience, 
We are going to be missing out. We'll be lacking. We won't be happy. We can never assume that we'd ever be content. So there's this battle going on, and it's part of the world that we're living in. And so contentment is huge. And the secret of contentment isn't in the acquisition of more toys and more dollars. It's in a relationship with the God of the universe that Paul says, he's my ballast in good times and bad. I'm content. I have that soul-satisfying peace. That word tranquility, it has a word picture in the original language of a table that is spread, and it's a beautiful spread of food. We've all been to that table, if you think about it. And you join your family, you join your friends, and you get about a minute into the meal. Everybody's been served, and we're digging in, and all of a sudden you notice what? It's quiet. Like, Mama loves it when that happens. Because everybody's what? They're satisfied. They're enjoying. What are they enjoying? Think about it. They're enjoying what's before them. Not what they wish they had. Not what they once had, but what's before them, that meal. It's satisfying. And that is something that we so desperately need in our day, in our world, in our lives. We're chasing, we're chasing, we're chasing for what stuff can't deliver. Only God can. Soul-satisfying contentment. There's a third thing he's going to point out that's meaningless as he's making this case. It's found in verses 7 and following. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil, yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked, and why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. Why is it meaningless? Go down to chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Of course, he couldn't be satisfied. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. And this is where he's at. And he comes to this point where in verse 8, he finally says, wait a minute, because he's been too busy to think about important things. He goes, wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm working my tail off. I'm amassing all this wealth. I got properties. I've got investments. I've got stocks. I've got this great collection of whatever he's collecting. He goes, I don't even know who I would give it to. I mean, I've just been chasing all this stuff, and and I have completely missed the gift of relationships that God has provided here on this earth. He's missed it. In a completely different way, I came to that sad truth when we were checking our daughter, Claire, in for surgery. And after we checked in and found our seats, there was a deaf woman who walked up with a translator. And so all of a sudden, we could overhear the conversation. And the the question from the woman behind the desk is, and who can we contact in case of emergency? And she signed it all out, and the translator said, I don't have anyone. And it just was like, oh, that's so sad. And that wasn't of her choosing, I am sure. But, but this man here in Ecclesiastes 4, like so many of us, have, has found himself where he's, he doesn't have any family. He didn't have time for family. 
He's cut off from that. Makes me think of these successful men who gathered for a meeting at the Edgewater Beach Hotel, place in Chicago, the year is 1923. Some of the world's most wealthiest and successful men. Almost anyone in that day would have gladly changed places with them. I mean, these guys had achieved success in the highest understanding of that word. But yet, 25 years later, all but two are dead. And let me go through the litany of what happened to these men who were working it and hoping that the promise was going to be true, that they'd find all that they're looking for, and, and they're chased for stuff and more and more. None of them found that soul satisfaction that is found in God. Listen to it. Charles Schwab, the president of the nation's largest independent steel company, lived on borrowed money the last five years of his life and died bankrupt. Samuel Insull, the president of a giant utility company, died a penniless fugitive from justice in a foreign country. Howard Hobson, a gas company executive, suffered from insanity. Arthur Cotton died destitute, this big wheat speculator. Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, was released from Sing Sing Prison. Albert Fall, a member of the president's cabinet, was released from prison so he could die at home. The greatest bear on Wall Street, Jesse Livermore, committed suicide. So too, Ivan Kruger. So too, President Leon Frazier. All these men learned well the art of making a living. But they were completely clueless on the art of finding contentment. Oh, man, they had two hands full and grasping for more. They didn't understand that one handful plus contentment is what they're really looking for. There's a better way. There's a better way. And that better way is not necessarily found in a marriage, though verses 9 through 12 are often read at a wedding, but it's in relationship, it's in partnerships, it's in community. So what does he say? It's better. It's better to be in relationship. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor, right? There's a better return. We get so much done by ourselves and so much more done with other people, and yet so often we don't operate like that. Someone says it's better. There's more productivity. There's another reason why it's better. Verse 10, if either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. So a friend does what? They lift. Friends what? Lift. You got a friend who's tearing you down. Guess what? They're not your friend. You got a friend who's, who's knows you're in a hurting way and just says, man, just pull yourself together and get over it already. It's not your friend. A friend is there to lift us up. There's more, though. Keep going. Verse 11. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? So there, there's this, this, this physical description that he's talking about. Palestine, the nights, the days are hot. The nights are cold. Travelers traveling together, they're huddling up to stay warm, right? If you don't have anybody traveling with you, you got your donkey, you're, just, you're getting right next to that beast of burden to get warm. And that's not just physical, but think about spiritual, emotional connection, intimacy 
in, in times of vulnerability. He says, you don't have that if you're doing the Lone Ranger thing. This is another reason why two are better than one. Then he talks about the final one. Though one can be overpowered, two can defend themselves. You're protected, right? A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. So this Lone Ranger, kind of rugged individualism, this is the stuff that, we, that, is, that we've been bred with. This is the stuff of America. This is the stuff we go, that's so American. We, that guy, that woman just pulled herself up. This person got, you know, from, from the bottom here and got to the top here. From the, you know, they were the clerk in this company. They went to the president. We go, that's so great. That's what we do in America. We love that about America. And, and, and there's something that we don't often want to see is the shadow of that and the emptiness of that. And getting to the top of the ladder and going, oh, my word, this thing was leaned up against the wrong structure. What have I been chasing? Reminds me of the CEO who talks about, reflectively, about his approach to work. He says, my approach to work was, it was a 24-7 commitment. Nothing came before my job. So I lost my marriage in the first five years. And my life since then has been this kind of moving around the country, visiting my 14 plants, and my usual routine is I'm eating dinner in some far-off airport on Saturday nights by myself. And that's a sad picture. Muggeridge, the great British writer, says this, the most terrible thing about materialism, even more terrible than its proneness to violence, is its boredom. And I don't know about you, but man, eating dinner regularly in a foreign airport, not your own home on Saturday nights, that's your routine. That's sad. Not just boring. That's sad. And I'm wondering, in our chase, and let me just say, I, I think it really happens, men, and I'm sure it happens with women, but I just know it experientially in our 20s and 30s. Man, we are chasing it. Chasing it hard. And what happens is, the relationships that are most important, these gifts that God has given us, your close friends, if you're married, your spouse, your kids, your family, that there's a distance there and there's something going on. You've got this greater commitment and you've duped yourself and think, well, that's how I show my love. And so there's not going to be a surprise when your teenage son one day says, Dad, I don't want your life. I don't want any of that. I just wanted you. It's meaningless, he says. It's just, it's just, it's futile. Work is never going to answer. Why am I here? We can do all our work to the glory of God, but that's all about a relationship. That's not about work. And, and this craziness, we're pursuing all this stuff, can drive us away from one of the greatest gifts and opportunities we have to mark other people's lives and to be marked by theirs. God help us. Well, there's a fourth thing that's meaningless and a better way. He tells us about this in verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king. So you got a youth who's wise, and you got an older king who's a fool, who no longer knows how to heed a warning. See, he knows it all. 
He doesn't listen to his advisors. He doesn't ask for counsel because he knows it all. He's the king. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here, here is this, this misplaced influence, this, this this misplacing of wisdom, this, this misunderstanding that you've got a position, you have an opportunity to have great influence, but because you in your pride have said, I, I know everything I need to know, you lose that. You lose your influence, you, lo you, use, you lose your ability to win the people's favor, and so what, what, what happens? This, this wise youth who maybe was born poor, maybe was, came from the prison, and now he's there because he's wise, he's humble, he's listening. And, and then he says, and just to show you how meaningless it all is, at the end of the day, they're both going to be forgotten. Somebody's going to succeed them, and they're, they're going to be trashed at that time too. But the point here, he's saying, there's a better way, and the better way is the way of wisdom. It's the better way of humility. And I'm wondering how many of us are like that Proud, foolish king. We're hard of hearing. I said it last night. One of the great regrets in my life, one of the things I am really leaning into, is to listen intently to my wife's wise counsel. I mean, it's just like, I know my wife loves me, and she is godly, and she is wise, but how many times have I... Have I had this? Well, I, I, honey, I got it. I, I, okay, okay. But I, I want to, how many times? And the track record looking back is regret, regret. I should have listened. But why didn't I listen? Because I was proud. I was proud. And so I'm just going to talk to the men here. This is a particular challenge for us. We laugh about the whole asking directions. I'm talking about something way more serious in life. It's about direction in life. It happened just this week. So we rent out our cabin. The cleaners said, hey, the, the renters, this is the first time it's happened, 11 years. The, the renters trashed one of the leather chairs, pieces of leather behind the chair. And, you know, I, I, I send a note, and they go, well, we don't know what happened. And our dog was always downstairs, and we'd feel a lot more comfortable about things if um, we saw a picture and knew that you saw it. And I'm going, all right, game on. I am getting that $300 security deposit to replace the chair. So I'm in battle formation. We're going to win this. T. Meifer is going to win this. <laughs> and my wife is going, what are you doing? You got a 26-year-old daughter who's facing cancer, and this is the battle you want to jump into? And so they trash us with a review. Is that really what you want? And I'm going, just listen to your wife, Mike. So I got it right this week. So grateful I got it right. Yeah, thank you for clapping. <laughs> but if it happens again, no, I'm scared. <laughs> so, you know, pride is a big deal. And the Bible says this, pride goes before the what? Fall. And we're, we're, we're foolish if we think we're the smartest person in the room. We're foolish if we think we know all the answers and have 
all the facts at hand. We're, we're fools, and we make everybody around us just smaller, and it's all because of the smallness of our own insecurities. And that's why our relationship with Christ is so important. It makes us secure, so it's okay for us not to have all the answers and to pretend like we have all the answers. It's okay. And so here's this king who wastes an opportunity to influence because he misplaces wisdom and he replaces it with pride. And let me tell you, pride is going to be one of those things that wants to just it wants to invade every part of us. It's not a gender thing. And it, fa- it has many different faces. Many different faces. And this is huge. And so four more reasons why life under the sun is meaningless. Why this world is twisted. Not because God twisted it. Because when we wanted to be God, we stopped loving him. We stopped loving each other. And so you notice the common things that are going on. is As we live for ourselves, people are getting oppressed. As we live for ourselves, we're functioning in greed, right? And we're, we're deprived of contentment. And so we're not positioned to have relationships because we're chasing for more. And it's not surprising that we waste the relationships that God has blessed us with and the opportunity through the positions we have to influence people because we're swapping folly, you know, for wisdom. We're we're swapping an opportunity to be humble for just pride, and we're just nose-planning, nose-planning. So when we come to the Scripture like this and we go, oh, my word, you know, I, I... I probably take advantage in different ways of people for my own selfish gain. I'm probably more like this. I mean, all you got to do on the contentment thing is just ask your family, do, am I, do, do I come across as contented or am I chasing for something more? Look at your, look at your credit card statements. That's going to answer something on the contentment thing. You go, I'm not content. I'm just chasing it for the next toy, the next experience, the next friend, whatever it is. You go, oh, my goodness, I don't have that in Christ. You go, man, I don't have the relationships because, you know, I'm burning through them or I don't have time for them or I'm so proud. And we go, what, what do you do with that when the scripture nails you right between the eyes? It's easy. You just own it. You go, God, that's me. Help me. Help me. If you've never done that before, that's how this relationship starts in honesty going, God, I'm a, I'm a mess. I'm not loving you with my whole heart. I'm not loving my neighbor. I'm living for myself. And I'm not finding meaning and satisfaction and significance and purpose and security and all of that. And so I'm I'm turning it over to you. So I'm just owning up what I've done wrong. And as Christ followers, we just come back. This week go, God, that's me. That's me. And then what do we do? We claim the gospel that Jesus, who had power, laid it down, who had position, right, didn't function in pride, but he took on our human identity, our flesh, and he became a servant. He was born in poverty. He died on the cross. He, he does it all right. He's in relationship. If anybody could have been a lone ranger, a rugged individualist, it's Jesus. Like, what was he missing? He's God. But he was in community all the time. And, and so we hold on to Christ. We hold on to the gospel and say, God, change my heart. Keep making it more like you. What a grace that the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, Jesus' spirit, is in us. So that's what we want to do this week. That's what we have to do. I want to do that. 
I want to use the power and position I have to serve the vulnerable in my life, to serve other people. I want to have influence through relationships. I want to find contentment so I'm not distracted from the important things in life. I'm ready to engage with God and his world at this time. And so we hang on to Christ, his spirit, his word, and community, his people, as we walk together to be those shining lights who are doing good and pointing to the one who says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'll give you abundant life. Look to Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, we bless you for your word that cuts us again and reminds us of how we've just lost our way in so many ways. Lord Jesus, thanks for never losing your way, never wasting your power, your position, your energy, your relationships, and thank you that you continue to change lives. Your influence has never stopped and never will, and until you come or call us home, may we be partnering with you pointing a desperate world to our only source of joy and contentment. In Christ's name we pray, amen.